Hi, this is Ken Robinson. Get ready for a great conversation. But remember, every Tuesday, there's a new edition of Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection, featuring highlights from the golden age of American radio on many of these same podcast platforms. People love panoramic lifestyle t-shirts. Oh, I like everything about it. I, I just like the word panoramic. It just seems like it's growing and developing and it's upbeat. And this is actually actually what I love to be. I love to feel this way. How does it make you feel? Happy, very positive. It's the quality and character of panoramic lifestyle t-shirts from Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing. Check them out at plclothing.store. WGAR now presents Sunday Digest, a program featuring interesting conversation with people making a difference in Northeast Ohio and around the nation with award-winning broadcaster Ken Robinson. And now here's Ken and Sunday Digest on WGAR. Good morning to you. Today we learn about panic attacks and also dyslexia. Now it's an ailment that's usually detected in children, but there's a lot of misconceptions about this learning disability. But first, head lice. It's a growing problem among school kids. Typically, head lice peaks in the fall when kids go back to school. Now this summer, head lice cases jumped among Little League teams and other organized sports teams. Dr. Chantal Henderson is a pediatrician with West Shore Primary Healthcare Associates and says, it's a growing problem. It's most commonly during the summer months, but we do get an increased amount also when, when school starts because of the close contact with kids in school. Um, so it's not uncommon for me as a pediatrician to see that pretty often in the office, especially this time of year. And how do kids get head lice? Head-to-head contact. Um, that's the most prevalent mode of transmission. And it's through sharing combs, sharing brushes. And the best ways to treat this disease? The best treatment that we have available is actually over-the-counter, and it's a substance called Nix. And what you do is you apply the the shampoo or the cream rinse, actually, for um, 10 minutes. You rinse it off, and then you have to repeat it in 7 to 10 days. Now, how can you actually tell your child has head lice? You really can't see the lice itself, but you will see the nits, um, and, and it's just an empty sac that from the, what the egg was in, um, and then it's attached to the hair, and that's usually how you can tell, but it's just really just itches real bad. And once you've determined your kid has head lice, what should you do? First of all, probably treat all household members, um, especially if they do use all the same comb and brush, and you treat them all at the same time. And, and at that time, you wash all of the clothing and the bed linens with very, very hot water. Words of advice from Dr. Chantal Henderson, a pediatrician with West Shore Primary Healthcare Associates. She says it's a problem that many kids have, but it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Head lice is a disease that kids get just being kids. This is FM 99.5 WGAR. From WGAR, this is Sunday Digest with Ken Robinson. Now, Sunday Digest continues with Ron Davis. For years, he suffered with the learning disorder known as dyslexia, but he's gone from being victim to victor. Ron Davis is author of the book, The Gift of Dyslexia. Thanks for joining us today. And first, what exactly is dyslexia? Well, dyslexia is one thing that has a history, 
and uh, the earliest research we can find into it is back in the 1860s. There were two guys, a guy by the name of Russell, a guy by the name of Morgan, looking at it. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a name for it. The name came along in 1896, a guy by the name of James Heinzelwood, I think, is the guy that coined the word. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a medical doctor. And he said that, essentially said that dyslexia was caused because of brain damage to the speech and language center of the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, because dyslexia was the first word used to uh, denote a learning disability, uh, dyslexia is now an umbrella term that covers all forms of learning disabilities. And in its history, I mean, the, the doctors gave up on trying to solve dyslexia in the 1930s and 40s. The psychologist picked it up. And I'm married to a psychologist, by the way. <laughs> and what happened is the, the problem got, got codified and, and dissected. And, and now there are, are 74 different names that are used to indicate different parts of dyslexia, different kinds of learning disabilities, like dyslexia with numbers. Mm -hmm. It's called a calculia or dyscalculia. Mm -hmm. Dyslexia with writing is called a graphia or dysgraphia. They all fit under the umbrella of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think of dyslexia, we often think of uh, kids who have trouble reading and maybe seeing words on a page uh, transposed. Okay. This comes clear from clear back in the 1930s when a, a doctor by the name of Samuel Torrey Orton was trying to describe dyslexia. And his theory was that it was caused because of uh, miswiring inside the person's head. In other words, he said that the, the left side of the brain was doing what the right side should do and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the use of reversals is one of the ways that he used to illustrate what dyslexia would be. And somehow it became a benchmark for dyslexia. And I can't tell you how many moms will bring their child to our correction center and say, oh, my, my son or my daughter couldn't possibly have dyslexia because they don't do reversals. In actual fact, reversals is fairly rare in dyslexia, especially after the age of nine. Hmm. And there are certain benchmarks that you can look for for dyslexia. Uh, in adults, it shows up primarily as atrocious spellers, very bad handwriting or penmanship, and reading is very slow. Often the person would have to reread the same material many times, make sure they've got it correct, and their reading stamina is quite low. They can only read for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, and they either start to get a headache or they start to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So those are for adults. For kids, it's problems learning how to read, write, spell, do math. And in some cases, even, even speaking is affected by it. Now, you, you, you're, you're self-described as a uh, dyslexic, dyslexic engineer from California. Well, yeah. Uh, officially, I am mentally retarded. The, the words that were applied to me was mental retardation. And there was a reason for that. I started out with a worse problem than dyslexia. I started out with a problem they now call autism. And developmentally, I did between the ages of 9 and 12 what the average child does between birth and 2. And I did between 12 and 15 what the average child does between 2 and 4. Well, when I was 17, they finally got around to giving me an IQ test, and I aced it out. I got 137 points on it. And they said, oh, my God, we made a mistake. This guy has a, an IQ. Uh, let's give it speech therapy and teach him how to talk. Let's, let's give him uh, reading training and teach him how to read. The speech therapy worked. I learned how to, to speak. The reading training didn't. At age 18, I could not sustain a second grade reading level. Mm. At age 38, I was scoring 169 on the IQ tests. 
I still could not read a newspaper or a menu in a restaurant and believed the reason for it was that when I was being born, I was, uh, the doctor used instruments and he pinched my head and he, and he ruined my brain. Uh, now, is that in <coughs> fact true? Do, does, does that actually happen? Well, that was an excuse that they gave. I mean, they, they had to have some logical reason for the problem, and it was a very easy answer to believe. I mean, all I had to do is look at a newspaper, and I knew that there was something wrong. And as an adult, I couldn't spell at third grade level. I, I, I couldn't spell the word does. Yet I could run three engineering companies simultaneously. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the... Uh the contradiction there, we, we, when we, we think of somebody being dyslexic, we say, well, he can't be an engineer. I mean... Uh, oh, <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Ken, when we were doing the initial research into dyslexia, like everyone else researching the problem, our attention was centered on the, the negative aspect, the, the reading, writing, spelling, math kinds of problems kids were having. Mm -hmm. Once we could actually correct the condition, we realized that what we were seeing was just one face or one facet of something that was much larger. And as we began to explore the much larger aspect, we began to understand the developmental differences between a normal or an average child and a dyslexic child. Mm -hmm. We began to understand that the very function that a nine-year-old child performs that prevents them from learning how to spell will actually make them more intelligent than the average human being. And further in our uh, exploration, we discovered how it is that people like Leonardo da Vinci, probably the most intelligent man in, in history, uh, Albert Einstein, Henry Ford, Eli Whitney, Thomas Edison, Alex Bell, uh, Walt Disney, how all of these great geniuses were also dyslexics. We're talking to Ron Davis, author of the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, Why Some of the Smartest People Can't Read and how they can learn. He's also, he also founded the Reading Research Council in Burlingame, California. Uh, you call it the, the gift of dyslexia. Right. You've overcome the obstacles placed before you. Well, yeah, all dyslexics do. I mean, all dyslexics, usually between the ages of 9 and 12, be, well, around the age of 9, they begin to solve their problem. And dyslexia changes from being one kind of a problem to being another. Mm -hmm. By the time a child is 12, they've created, they've changed what was a handicap into a disability. It was a handicap up until the age of nine, and they started to solve it, and the solutions they came up with wind up being the disability they have to live with for the rest of their lives. And our education system has been destroying genius for the last 60 years. How so? Well, <coughs> In order for a person to have dyslexia, the person has to have three characteristic traits that, that <clears throat> are actually abilities they have to have. The first ability they have to have is something called nonverbal conceptualization. Well, that's very sample, simple language or very complicated language for the simple ability to imagine an apple. Mm -hmm. Okay, To see how this would relate to a learning disability, we have to be aware that there are two basic ways people think. There's something called nonverbal conceptualization, which is picture thinking, and something called verbal conceptualization, which is thinking with the sounds of words. Uh, that kind of thinking amounts to sitting there listening to yourself talk to yourself inside your head. Mm -hmm. Now, most people can do both kinds of thinking, and most people do. But because we're people, we specialize. And dyslexics had to specialize in the nonverbal, the picture kind of thinking mode. That's one of the puzzle pieces. The second puzzle piece, the person has to have the ability inside their head 
to put what they are thinking in the same place where they see with their eyes. Now, have you ever had the experience of sitting in a car behind another car at a stoplight or a stop sign? The car in front of you rolls towards you, and you feel like you're the one that's moving? Have you ever had that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the part of the brain that creates that phenomenon is the same part of the brain that creates all of the dyslexia symptoms. And by the way, when that's happening to you, you are as dyslexic as I am. Okay. Now, the difference between it happening to you in your car and me in a classroom, the only difference is the stimuli that triggers the phenomenon. Now, apparently, some of us are born with a genetic code that gave us access to the part of our brain that creates that phenomenon. We discovered it when we were infants, incorporated using it in our thought process by the time we were 12 year, or by the time we were two years old. And in doing so, we did two things. One, we opened the door to being more intelligent than the average human being. And two, we also opened the door to the development of dyslexia. That's the second puzzle piece. Third puzzle piece has to do with confusion and something called a threshold for confusion. Everybody's got one. And when you hit yours is the point where you turn off. It's the point where you can't go any further without getting overwhelmed. Well, the dyslexic child has to be someplace where the confusion keeps peaking past their threshold for confusion and they're not allowed to back off or get away from it. They're forced to remain in that environment and to endure through it. Now, because this usually happens in school or carries over into school, dyslexia shows up as some kind of a learning disability. Okay. Now, in order for us to understand the basic differences between the normal person and the dyslexic person, we need to go all the way back to the first part of this, the ability to do nonverbal conceptualization. Mm -hmm. Verbal conceptualization is what most people do, and it's very slow. You're thinking with the sound of language. You're thinking in sentences, one word at a time. Okay. Okay. Uh, if you could think as fast as an auctioneer could talk, you could think with up to about six words in a second. But most people think at the speed at which they speak which is somewhere between two and three words a second. So if the person were going to have a thought that took 12 words, it would take about four seconds to have that thought. During that same four seconds, the nonverbal conceptualizer would have 128 individual pictures thought, and any one of those pictures could require a thousand words for a word thinker to think. The speed differential is horrendous. There are some researchers that say nonverbal thinking is 400 times faster than verbal. Other researchers say no, it's 2,000 times faster. Reality depends upon the complexity of the thought the person is having. Okay. Now, That's one aspect. Okay. okay. Now, for parents who may be listen listening, uh, how can a parent detect uh, dys dyslexia in a child? It's very difficult if you're trying to figure out by symptoms. Symptoms is the worst way to detect dyslexia because we don't even know what all of the symptoms of dyslexia are. There are no two people that have dyslexia that have the same thing. There is no definitive test that you can give somebody that says that they have dyslexia. Well, the way we dealt with that particular problem in writing the book is we created uh, scenarios like the first part of the book gets into the learning disability part of dyslexia here the mother of a teenage child that's struggling in school could read that part of the book and if the child fits the profile the problem is dyslexia mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The second part of the book gets into the developmental stages of dyslexia. Here, a mom of a three-year-old could read that part of the book, and if their three-year-old fits that profile, dyslexia is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any idea how many people, how many Americans out there suffer from dyslexia? Uh, the federal government said in October of this year that up to 70% of the population will at time to time manifest dyslexia type symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, a person that would occasionally reverse a telephone number or if they're typing, type the word the backwards, that person is occasionally experiencing a dyslexia type symptom. You couldn't hardly call that a learning disability. Mm -hmm. One person in four, one person of every four people you know is learning hampered by dyslexia and one person out of every 10 people you know is functionally illiterate because of it. But the good news is that there, there are things parents and adults suffering from dyslexia can do to, uh, to get a handle on this uh, It's actually correctable. When you consider that re- in reality, dyslexia shouldn't be a learning disability. It should simply be classified as a teaching inadequacy. The dyslexics are nonverbal conceptualizers. They don't think with the sound of words. The whole education system is based around verbal conceptualization. The kids that can't do verbal conceptualization are dealt out from the beginning. And by the time they learn how to do verbal conceptualization, they're already up to six years behind the rest of the kids in school. So there, there is a deficit there that cannot be made up. The education system to eliminate dyslexia would only have to adapt itself to teaching nonverbal thought in school. The book is The Gift of Dyslexia, and our guest has been Ron Davis, a self-described dyslexic engineer from California. 
can frighten you. Women usually worry they're going to lose their minds, and men are afraid they're going to have a heart attack and die. Uh, everybody worries, worries they're going to lose control and embarrass themselves and do something stupid in front of everybody. You know, mm. Nobody does most of those things, but we worry <laughs> about those things happening all the time. Everybody has anxiety. You have it. The guy down the street has it. You know, everyone has it. We don't all have it to the point where it actually disrupts our life. And that's when you need to do something about it. When it's controlling you, you need to take control of it. A panic attack is anxiety at its maximum. It's when you feel like you're totally going to lose control. You're going to scream. You've got to run somewhere and be safe. You know, someone asked me to describe a panic attack, and the only way I can describe it would be if you were in an airplane and you knew it was going to crash nose down, and you had three minutes to think about it. You're going down, you know, at whatever speed they go, and you're knowing you're going to die. And you want to run, but you can't run. You know something bad's going to happen. Your heart would be going 90 miles an hour. You'd be hyperventilating, and you'd have this awful sensation because you knew you were dying. That's what a panic attack feels like. That sounds awful scary. It, it's awfully <laughs> scary, but unfortunately it happens when you're laying in bed mm. or when you're sitting at home watching television or you're on the freeway stuck in a traffic jam. It's no plane crash. There's no immediate danger. You just think there is. And when you think there is, you tell your body there is, you release sodium lactate and adrenaline, and you create the symptoms. And then you're no longer afraid of the traffic jam. Now you're afraid of the way you physically feel. And then you start thinking, why am I feeling this way? How long is it going to last? And then you go running off to your doctor, and he gives you Xanax or Zoloft or Prozac. And then you go home and you take the, this drug, and it can be helpful. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you take a Xanax, and, and what happens is you're just, it's helping to treat the symptoms, but it does, does nothing at all to get to the cause, which is the way that you think. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Lucinda Bassett, who's author of the book, From Panic to Power. She's also founder of the Midwest Center for Stress and Anxiety Incorporated. I'm Ken Robinson on WGAR. Was life difficult for you, <laughs> having, growing up having panic attacks? Life was a nightmare. I mean, my, my life was a constant um, you know, myriad of excuses. I mean, my life was just a myriad of all these different reasons why I couldn't, why I couldn't go out with friends, why I couldn't ride in the backseat of a car, why I couldn't go to a social func function, why I wouldn't travel far away with my boyfriend, why I couldn't go to college, sit in the room, in the classroom, you know. You are a person who appears on TV now. You've been on uh -huh. Oprah, I understand. Oh, I've been on all the, all the all major the talk shows. shows. If anybody would have told you years ago that you would be on national TV, would you have believed it? Well, part of me would have because I was that kind of person. I was outgoing and, and I loved, I was a performer, except that my fears and my insecurities and my what-ifs, you know, what if I'm not good enough? What if they don't like me? That, you know, because of those insecurities, I would have said, oh, no, not me, you know, not me. But now I realize that I'm in my 30s and I have all this potential because I am a perfectionist and because I am very creative and because I overanalyze things and I think a lot. And I, all the traits that made me anxious are now the traits that are making me successful. Now, it's easy to say, hey, you should do this and you should do that and right. you should turn your life around and right. get on the right track. Come on, snap out of it. Uh -huh. How do you do it practically? How, well, how does someone who's riddled with panic attacks get rid of them. First thing you have to do, number one, is take responsibility for your own anxiety. It's not your husband's fault. It's not your children's fault. It's not your mother-in-law's. Well, maybe it is your mother-in-law's fault. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's nobody's fault but your own if you're anxious. When you, when you become an adult, you have to stop blaming it on your past or anybody in your life. You say, if I'm anxious right now, 
I'm causing it, okay? The, the pills, there's no magic pill, there's no magic doctor. Number two, you have to change the way that you think, and that's a skill that has to be learned. You, you, the average person has 300 negative thoughts a day. You are literally beating yourself up every two and a half minutes and making yourself anxious. You have to change that thought process, and that's something we call uh, empowering thought replacement. It's a skill where you learn how to make yourself feel the way that I could make you feel if you sat with me for 10 minutes. How about some specific examples in day-to-day -day living? Let's say... Uh Joan Panic wakes up, ready for breakfast, ready to start her day. How so she woke she up in a panic, right? <laughs> okay. First of all, you know, what you need to do is, is try to evaluate what's causing the anxiety. Did you watch something on TV last night? Is it something that's coming up this day? Do you have a confrontation with a boss? And then start using positive dialogue right away to say to yourself, I'm overreacting. It's going to be okay. I'm you're not going to let this get to me. It's no big deal. I'm going to be just fine. And then watch what you eat. Don't get up and drink a cup of coffee, smoke a cigarette, and eat a chocolate donut. All right? You're setting yourself up for anxiety. Stay away from caffeine. Stay away from sugar. Instead, have a bowl of cream of wheat, have a cup of chamomile tea, chamomile tea. Uh, set yourself up physically for a good day. Get out and take a walk, you know, and start immediately giving yourself positive messages about the day. Something else I strongly suggest, this is one of the things I suggest in the book, is that you track your anxiety. If you want to start right now working on it, get a little spiral notebook and start writing down every time, just do it for a week, you'll find some interesting patterns, you know. When, when were you anxious? When did you have an anxious episode? Who were you with? What had you just eaten? What were you doing? What time of day is it? You're going to start seeing a pattern to your anxiety. Maybe certain people. Um, being around certain people make you more anxious. Maybe you have negative friends that you hang out with and you guys kind of go, woe is me. How was your day? Oh, mine was bad. How was your day? Oh, mine was just really bad. <laughs> but start tracking your anxiety attacks. And the other thing we suggest you do is track your negative thoughts and also track negative thoughts of people around you. You know, write down Dave and what he said and you're going to be amazed how fast you'll come up with 300 negative thoughts a day or how fast your friends will and then replace them with what we call compassionate self-talk. And that's a skill that takes a little time to learn. But the best thing you can do is accept your anxiety. It's not going to kill you. Although, men who have panic attacks are 10 times more likely to die of sudden death heart attack than the men who aren't. And you need to know that because when you put your body through this, this uh, fight or flight response over and over again, it will take its toll on you. You need to do something. You can't go on living like this and stay healthy. Eventually, it could make you sick. Uh, accept your anxiety. Try to figure out what it is that's making you anxious. Use positive self-talk to talk yourself through it. Distract yourself. If you're on a plane and it's a little bit turbulent, talk to the person beside you. Read a good magazine. Take some Pepto-Bismol or some Dramamine so you feel safe. Take it with you. Don't take it, you know. And then distract yourself. Do something with that energy. Get up. Clean closets if you're at home. Wash the car. And then give yourself permission to have it and relax because it'll always go away. Anxiety mm. always goes away. Where do panic attacks, how do they develop? How do they start? Is it the way we're raised? Is it something hereditary? Uh, it is biochemical. That means we have an excessive amount of catecholamine activity in our brain. All that means, translation, we're a little more hyper than the average person, okay? So some people are more predestined to be, have panic attacks yes, than others. Yes, it's genetic. Your parents probably had anxiety. You might have had a father, as I did, who self-medicated with alcohol and Valium because he didn't know he had anxiety. You might have had a mother who took nerve medicine, okay? Nerve pill. I got my nerve pill. Um, these are, it's genetic, it's biochemical, but it's not, it's mostly... There's some environmental issues. Did you grow up in a family where everything had to be perfect? There were a lot of expectations, a lot of strict religious upbringing, a lot of guilt in your religion. 
but the most important factor is the personality traits. Again, you would not have a problem with anxiety if you weren't obsessive, worrisome, analytical, perfectionistic, and a negative thinker. And if you are all of those things, there's a good chance that anxiety is creeping into your life, affecting your personal life, your professional life, your relationships, everything. And, and it could be better and you can take control of it. The book is From Panic to Power, Proven Techniques to Calm Your Anxieties, Conquer Your Fears, and Put You in Control of Your Life. Our guest has been Lucinda Bassett, who's founder of the Midwest Center for Stress and Anxiety Incorporated. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And there's the music. Gotta go. See you next week. This has been Sunday Digest with WGAR's Ken Robinson, a public affairs presentation of 99.5 WGAR. The views and opinions expressed on the show were those of the participants and not necessarily those of WGAR, its staff, and management. Join us next week for another edition of Sunday Digest. Panoramic lifestyle clothing. Hey, look alive! Everything lights up, makes you want to shout. Talk about happiness, that's what we're talking about. You'll look great in a panoramic lifestyle t-shirt. Nobody won't bring you happiness, but we know who will. Come on now, smile, get happy. Order your t-shirt today at plclothing.store. plclothing.store. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. Prevent Blindness is urging parents to be careful when buying toys. Spokeswoman Darcy Downey says toys can cause serious child injuries. Well, before purchasing uh, any toy or gift, we suggest um, that the family members and friends get recommendation from the parents on what they feel is appropriate for the child. And be really careful about inspecting the gifts before a child um, learns to play with them. And some of the toys to avoid are toys that shoot or include parts that fly off. Uh, slingshots and even water guns are dangerous because they invite children to target other kids. And BB guns, obviously, should never even be considered as a toy. Downey explains that there are around 251,000 toy-related injuries in the United States each year, and most of those were to children under the age of 15. The most common injured part of the body, the head and face area. Read the directions. So many times we don't read the directions and follow the suggested age guidelines. Make sure parents ask themselves if the toy is right for your child's ability and age. The age labeling is for the ability levels and for the safety of the child. We suggest avoiding toys that shoot any projectiles, such as a gun. Also, uh, paintball. Believe it or not, the amount of injuries that come from paintball. And that's a lot of times happens more in the summer, but make sure you're reading all the warning and the instructions. That's Darcy Downey of Prevent Blindness. There are more than 251,000 toy-related injuries in the United States each year, and most of those are to children under age 15. The top three specifically identified toys associated with the most estimated injuries for all ages in 2014 were non-motorized scooters, toy balls, and toy vehicles. This podcast was created with Linux, the best computer operating system on the planet. Linux comes packed with lots of software and fights off viruses and malware. There are hundreds of Linux distributions, so it's easy to find the right one for you. It brings old computers back to life and makes new computers fast as lightning. Plus, it's completely free. Find out more. Go to Linux Alive on Facebook. 
Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner, part of the K Rob Collection. Learn more about our shows by checking out krobcollection.com or the K Rob Collection Facebook page.